Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we've got a special edition of Forum for you recorded live on March 11th at our headquarters here in the city. California is one of the world's great agricultural regions, but we've been known more for our wines and vegetables than for our local cheese making. Over the past couple of decades, though, Northern California cheese, infused with the particular spirit and organisms of this area, has come into its own by taking chances that your favorite French regions might not. So stay tuned to learn all about the chemistry of cheese making and why big food corporations started dyeing their cheese orange. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. From the world-class cheesemakers of Marin and Sonoma to cutting-edge vegan creameries, Northern California is one of the most magical cheesescapes on Earth. Yes, cheesescapes. And Forum celebrated the region's cheese culture at a special KQED Live event on March 11th. It was so, so good to be with our community, and you can hear us having a lot of fun. We had a hilarious, deeply knowledgeable panel, including vegan cheese legend Miyoko Shinner, founder of Miyoko's Creamery, Vivian Strauss, founder and managing partner of the California Cheese Trail, and Jenna Coglin, head cheesemaker at Tamales Farmstead Creamery. So now we're going to listen back to that conversation. I thought I knew the answer to this question until I really started to think about it, and that is, what is cheese? <laughs> Vivian, let's start with you. What makes cheese <laughs> cheese? Cheese is basically milk that is, <laughs> it is controlled fermenting of milk. And um, cheese has four ingredients, milk, cultures, enzymes, and salt. And that's it. That's it. That's and it. All, all cheese. the types of cheese that we call cheese. They just do different things, different amounts of, of cultures, different combinations, different uh, heating of the milk, uh, different types of milk. Um, so cheddars might all have similar cultures, but there's thousands of different cultures, so they can all be different, and some people just create their own cheese. Yeah. Jenna, um, you're the head cheesemaker, which means you're in charge of like the, this process. So for you, how do you think about what it is to turn milk into cheese? It's this really unique combination of food, science, art, magic, and uh, a really unique conversion of one thing to another. Uh, And we're all just kind of trying to control that process and get the best thing we can out of it. I mean, when we were talking backstage, one of the things that 
really struck me was this idea that the milk doesn't want to become cheese. Like that there's, that there's actually, you have, it's difficult to get it to turn into cheese. What did you mean by that? Uh, as it comes out of an animal or as you create it from a nut milk, uh, milk is going to have a certain chemistry to it. And a lot of what we do in cheese making is manipulating that chemistry to get it to turn from milk into curd. Hmm. And curds get processed in whatever way, and that is cheese. Uh, Miyoko, you make vegan cheese. So for you, do you see vegan cheese as, as just a, 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 the same thing as the other cheeses, or do you see it as something fundamentally distinct and separate? Well, you know, Alex, it could be construed differently by different vegan cheesemakers, but we actually at Miyoko's make cheese in a very similar way to these lovely ladies right here. We start out with a plant milk, and it could be from nuts or legumes or seeds, and then we inoculate it with dairy cultures, enzymes to coagulate the proteins or the starches sometimes. And, and then we turn it into cheese following many of the same methods as traditional cheese making. And when we talk about vegan cheese, like maybe I've had, that's not Miyoko's creamery vegan cheese. What would that be? Like, what is okay. it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the vast not to ask you to talk trash yeah. about the yeah. other vegan no, cheesemakers, but to ask yeah. you to talk trash. Well, you know, about I, th the other I think that we're sort of in that evolutionary period, trying to figure out, you know, how do you make cheese from plants? And there's many different approaches. Um, the most common is just combining oil and starch, and then adding a bottle of natural flavors. It's, I would say, it's akin to making American cheese. It's a sort of a process form. Um, so. That's pretty much what you find in the marketplace, but there are up-and-coming young vegan cheesemakers that are embracing the art and history of traditional cheesemaking and making beautiful cheeses that have bloomy rinds and blue veins and all sorts of things. Jenna, what's something you wish people understood better about cheese who aren't involved in sort of the cheesemaking world? The thing I really try to um, explain to people like when they come visit our farm um, on farm tours is that uh, milk changes throughout the season because animals eat different things the pastures change um, just all kinds of seasonal differentiation happens so you will make a different cheese from january to july and that is sort of the interesting and exciting aspect is figuring out how to make the best cheese with the milk that you have at that time and the way it changes. That is, because I don't think of cheese as being like a seasonal food. Like I don't, like asparagus, strawberries, like I understand tomatoes, like I understand those have these seasons. When you say the milk is different, you mean like the fat content. It's like, what, what's different about the milk during these the the feed that animals are having at any given time is going to affect what gets processed into their milk. So at certain times of year, the fat ratio is going to be higher. You get more um, color and um, plant plant cyanins, essentially, that change the color of the cheese. So if they're eating a lot of grass, you're going to get a more yellow cheese. Uh, whereas at other times of year, if they're eating more hay, then you have a more white cheese. So if I'm used to eating a cheddar that's always the same color, that means they dye it probably, right? Yeah, they add something called annatto, which is a natural dye. I think that was originated from the desire to have spring-type cheese all year round. That's so interesting. Uh, Miyoko, how about you? What do you wish people knew about 
cheese generally or, or vegan cheese? Well, you know, it's interesting because dairy cheese has been around for thousands of years. And the advent into plant milk cheeses is relatively new. It really only just started maybe a decade or so ago. So we're just learning about how plant milks operate. They don't behave the same way as dairy cheese. You can't just add rennet and expect the proteins to coagulate. And not all of them do coagulate. Not all the plant milks coagulate. So we're really just discovering how do these plant proteins behave when they're inoculated with various microorganisms like bacteria that bring their pH down or, um, you know, they have different amounts of sugar depending on the plant, different amounts of protein. And we're just discovering the most uh, protein and fat-rich seeds and nuts that behave most sim- more similarly to dairy, uh, cow dairy or sheep dairy than, than, uh, than other things. I just want to make sure people and by people, I mean myself, <laughs> understand what actual, what these plant milks are. Like, you know, sort of when I think of what olive oil is, for mm-hmm. example, it's turned out to be, it's kind of more like olive juice. Yeah. Um, so what is a, is a plant-based milk in this way? Okay, for us, it would be something like cashew milk. Uh, we have some new cheeses that are made out of uh, watermelon seed milk. So, which is a very, very high... Is that a thing? That doesn't sound like It's a thing. thing. (laughs) You know, we we, we kind of discovered it. And it's really interesting. It curdles. So we have a cottage cheese that's being made out of that that will launch next year. Um, We have a mozzarella that's made out of watermelon seed milk. It's very high in protein. Calorie for calorie, it's actually higher in protein than cow's milk. Um, So, uh, in protein. So it's it's quite interesting. Um, Some, you know, some produce really funky flavors. Other produce just really lovely sort of unctuous notes. So it really depends. Every single plant milk has different characteristics and they react differently depending on the lactic acid bacteria that you use. I mean, we played around with so many types of bacteria and it's interesting, when I first started the company in 2014, there were no vegan uh, uh, bacteria available at all. And now, you know, all of the culture companies are making all sorts of cultures that are grown in dextrose rather than in lactose mm-hmm. because there's so many uh, plant milk creameries that are coming up. Vivian, you get the uh, final word on this. What's something that you wish people understood about cheese that is not commonly understood? <laughs> I want to say that milk does not come from a bowl. <laughs> as, I as hope that's commonly understood. To it's be honest, not. Like it's not. truly it's, not. Unfortunately, it's not. <laughs> so I want to say you have to be a mother to give milk. Um, <laughs> um, I want to say actually that there's so many incredible cheesemakers and farms that you can visit in California, and that's what I want people to get out to find out that there are small farms struggling in in in, um, uh, in America and in California. The only small farms left are really in the Bay Area, Sonoma, Napa. Uh, Marin and uh, the Humboldt area. So get out on a farm. That's what I really want to say. Go visit the cheesemakers. Well, and I feel like this leads pretty directly into the California Cheese Trail, right? Which, tell us what that actually is and and why you started. Oh, there we go. We have a a portion of the map. Yes. The important portion (laughs) of the map, I would say. The very important portion. I, I grew up in a dairy, and I saw how farms were struggling, and so I was looking for a way to help small farms, and it was suggested to me to make a cheese map, and then I realized that the cheesemakers had no money and no marketing and didn't really know how to get um, the word out about their cheeses, and most of the cheesemakers are really tiny, and um, 
So that was just something that I thought I could do, and the map really has gotten people out there, and they're discovering new cheeses. So, yeah. I mean, what kinds of stories do exist in these different places, right? I mean, I think I, think I understand the rough sense of like what a family farm is, I think, mm-hmm. but maybe not. Like, what, what are the, what's the story, for example, of, of the farm that we're looking at here? Ah, that's the Asagina Dairy, and they are outside Petaluma, and um, uh, Joe Pacheco, who's the, who's the uh, dad, the guy in the red shirt, he's, um, he's uh, a, a cheesemaker, I mean, he's a dairy farmer from way back, and uh, then they got some goats, they started making cheese right there on the farm, and that's the whole family, everybody's involved, and um, you can go on that farm and get a tasting and see the creamery and see the animals, and they'll tell you exactly what happens. And the great thing is when you go to a farm, they will tell you about their struggles, which for me are very interesting to find out what's mm. difficult about being a farmer and what's the great thing about being a farmer. And then you get to be outside, and so yeah. that's what I love. Well, tell I mean, what is difficult about being a small farmer? I mean, if you're someone who's having a lot of interactions with them, what is, what's the most common story you hear about why it's hard to be a small farmer? Well, basically... You know, farmers are never paid what it costs to produce the milk, and and the price is not based on their cost of production. So uh, they need to find another way to to make a living. So that's why a lot of them have started making cheese because it is a value-added product. But they will tell you, I know they all have these unique stories. I, I, I you have to go to each one of them. You know, some of them are like there's one that's a a stockbroker that left New York and said, I'm going to figure out how to make farms sustainable. I'm going to show the world I can do it. And, <laughs> You know, making cheese, and they have a whole bunch of different animals, and uh, and some of them are five, you know, generations of dairy farmers who are trying to find a new way with a new generation to do something different. You're listening to a special edition of Forum recorded March 11th as part of the KQED live event series. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're listening back to a special live Forum event all about Northern California cheese culture. Our guests included Vivian Strauss, founder and managing partner of the California Cheese Trail. Did you start out thinking, like, I'm going to do all of California, or did you want to do, you know, Marin, say, or, or something like that? I started out in Marin and Sonoma because that's the biggest bulk of the small cheesemakers in California. And then um, immediately, one of, after two months of doing the first map, um, 
one of the cheesemakers came up to me and said, oh my gosh, my sales just went up 25%. This map is bringing people. And then other cheesemakers started throughout California said, can you please expand it? And so I did. And so now it's all of California. Can we continue on this little tour of, of California? How about the like, Penny Royal Farm? Um, Penny, Royal, Penny Royal is um, in Boonville, so it's in wine country. And it's actually two women. One is from a winery family, and the other one wanted to work with the animals. So they have sheep and goats, and they make cheese right there on site. And you can drink wine and eat cheese and take a tour of their animals and see the farm and see what they do there. Is it right outside, like the little town? It's just right Boonville? outside as you come into Boonville. It's oh, right there. That's one of the best little towns in um, How has the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic did such damage to so many small businesses. Um, I wouldn't necessarily think that it would have a huge effect on these creameries, but, but did it? It did. It had a huge effect because a lot of the, the creameries sell their cheese to restaurants. And all the restaurants closed. So they all had a very hard time. And, um, but somehow, I don't know, they've made it through. I could talk to Jenna and talk yeah, a little Jenna, bit about that. Yeah, Jenna, do you want to pop in on that one? Like, how did you all respond to the difficulties of the pandemic? I actually started my cheese career during the pandemic. So <laughs> I just sort of saw what was happening uh, in terms of, like you mentioned, uh, restaurant accounts dropping off and things like that. But a lot of them pivoted to... Uh, a sort of at-home kit situation. So you were able to get our cheeses, for example, through a lot of our partner restaurants. Um, so they were able to keep buying, we were able to keep selling, and people were able to keep eating. Yeah, I, I've been so amazed by the ingenuity of uh, the entire food system and coming up with new ways of surviving um, during, this, during this time. Um, Jenna, I also want to talk about sort of, just give us the sort of basics on Tamales Farmstead Creamery. Like, you, you started it during this time, but like, where is it? What kind of cheese do you make? Like, just give us kind of the, the, the elevator pitch for the creamery. We're located in beautiful Tamales, California. <laughs> um, but actually, it is really beautiful. Like, I'm that's not actually joking. Not a lie. As it is not a joke, and yeah. it's not copy. It's true. Um, it's in the far western part of Marin County, just by the Sonoma County line. And we raise uh, goats and sheep on site, and so we milk those, and then we also buy in some milk from uh, Silva Dairy, which is on the other side of our teeny tiny town. And uh, we're one of the few places that has a creamery there on site, so I can see the goats walking down the hill, getting milked, and then I know it's time to drive my tanker across the driveway, pick up the milk, and bring it over to the vat and start turning it into cheese. What kind of like measurement do you do? You know, you said the milk changes through time. So are you just sort of like sampling the milk every month or two months and figuring out, who knows, even a lot more often than that? There are some lab tools that we use to check um, butterfat content and things like that. But as you say, a lot of it is just tasting. And, um, so you literally are like, hmm, this is some fatty milk. Like, that's... <laughs> There's some of that. That's just for fun. But then uh, it's also seeing how it's reacting to our process. So we have a formula that is somewhat set. And then just over time as I've worked there, I've noticed different results because of the milk. Even if we're putting the same inputs in, your result is a little different. So um, a applying a slight tweak to the formula to get it to exactly what you want. Yeah. So 
Head cheese maker, one of the great job titles uh, in the history of the earth, I think. I don't um, make head cheese, though. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Head cheese, yeah. Worst job in the, in the world, actually, that one. It's kind of good. It's just not my bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, what do you do? Like, what's the day-to-day, you know, you wake up and... Um, I wake up, I drink my coffee, and then I get in there and start checking emails. Um, I was about to say, you check emails, just like everyone else. Exactly. Um, So there's that um, administrative part where um, I'm taking orders and coordinating with people and getting uh, all of our cheese moved to where it needs to go. And then uh, we get to the business of making the cheese. So that's uh, going across and picking up milk, uh, pasteurizing it. Uh, managing its temperature through that process and then um, adding cultures, rennet, and salt eventually once it, once it comes time to give it that, that flavor block. That's so interesting. You know, you mentioned earlier that like your main job is to go from milk to curd. But then that next step, is that that's somebody else, not the head cheese maker who does that or what? Uh, I have delegated that to my delightful assistant, Nick. Uh, he's in charge of what's called affinage. Uh, obviously, also we have um, a member of staff who is like his mentor and our real affineur, um, Maureen. But they are in charge of the aging of the cheese. So once we have it um, into wheels for our hard-aged cheese, it goes into a cave. And it's not a real drippy, scary cave. It's a big walk-in fridge. With... Why you got to ruin it for me? I, well... I wanted to imagine a, a drippy cave. <laughs> would... bat. I would love if we could just bore into a hill and have an actual <laughs> cave, but that's not in the budget. So for now, we use our walk-in fridges, and um, they'll stay in there for three to four months, sometimes up to a year, de- depending on kind of what we're going for. Um, they have to get washed periodically, just scrubbed with water. Um, sometimes we will just do a dry brush to manage the the mold and the like rind cultures that we're trying to develop on the surface of the cheese. Oh man. Talk to me more about rind cultures. If you can, I'm just like, I'm, I, it actually is totally fascinating. Like how do you make them grow in this way? You're creating like little communities, right? I mean, exactly. you're community building on the cheese. In fact, people often call it your community of, of cultures and uh, the microbiome of your cheese as it were. Uh, we inoculate with um, geotrichum and penicillin molds, and those will create um, like the bloomy rind you see on brie or other soft cheeses like that. Um, and geo is also important for hard cheese rind. Uh, we also use something called micador, which gets brined onto the exterior of our hard cheeses, um, and it helps create that hard outer layer that protects the inside creamy deliciousness. How'd you get into this? Are you like chemistry or like biochem major? Not or even like what? close. No, um, I was a history major in school. Um, I've done a lot of... History of Roquefort, granted, but... Sure, you know, yeah. in, my, in my spare time. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, when the pandemic hit, I was living in San Diego at the time. I was working in wineries and um, all our tasting rooms closed and I really couldn't do that job anymore. And I was like, let's see what else is out there. And I got an apprenticeship at Tuluma Farms and now I'm the head cheesemaker. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, we want to introduce another guest onto the stage. Cecilia Phillips is a broadcast video producer with KQED's Check Please Bay Area and a digital video producer for KQED Food. Welcome, Cecilia. See that? There she is. 
<laughs> um, Cecilia made us a video. They brought cheese. Cecilia brought a video. Um, so why don't you tell us about, uh, about the video you have? Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks for having me. I don't know how to make cheese, but I do know how to make videos. So hopefully you enjoy that. Um, I actually went out for Check, Please. I do a new segment called Cecilia Tries It, which is part of our uh, flagship food show, Check, Please Bay Area. Um, this was an opportunity for us to actually go out into the communities and feature not traditional brick and mortar restaurants and see some different spots where people can find food and um, go and try some things that they wouldn't necessarily find at a restaurant. So we actually went to Daily Driver, which is the first urban creamery in San Francisco. And at Daily Driver, they produce uh, cheese under two different labels. Uh, one label is the Daily Driver label, which is the milk from Silva Farms. And the cow's milk there is made into cream cheese and butter. But then they also sell the Tamales Farmstead Creamery cheese, where Jenna is the head cheesemaker. So this video kind of gives an overview of that spot, Daily Driver in the City, and also a sneak peek into our next season, season 17 for Chuck Please Area. Oh, that's awesome. There's some great goat footage in this, if you love goats. Um, let's uh, watch the video, and then we're going to talk with Cecilia a little bit about it. Daily Driver is this really dynamic maker space, and it's a bagelry, a cheese-making operation, and a roastery all under one roof. Yeah, we are probably one of only a few urban creameries in the entire United States. Oh, this looks so good. Tell me a little bit about the cow's milk that you use. It's insanely amazing milk. So we pick up the milk once a week. It's 500 gallons of milk that we drive down over the Golden Gate Bridge, which is kind of a crazy operation, probably why there's not a lot of urban uh, creameries. You guys got to come and see this. All right, so this is the cow's milk being pumped in. So we pump it in, then make cream cheese and butter from that. We make a European-style, French-style butter, which means that cultures are added to it. It's beautiful and just has this very distinct flavor. We are really hoping that people, when they come in here and see the cheese-making happening, that they connect that the source comes from 50 miles away and just right in our backyard. So it's 160 acres. We have 200 goats and 80 sheep. A little bit more right now because we have a bunch of baby lambs. <laughs> Something that we feel really passionate about is Tamales and West Marin and protecting land out in that area. So if you have healthy pastures and healthy soil, then you have healthy animals. If you have healthy animals and use fresh milk, you just can't go wrong. This is my calling. I'm a goat farmer and a goat milker, soon to be. All right. First thing you do is you grab the cloth and then you switch this to open so it'll be in line with the hose. And then you just grab each one and kind of stick it on the heat. Okay. <laughs> there we go. So turn on. Oh my gosh. Okay, so this is going to be warm, right? Yep. Okay. It's super frothy when it comes straight from the other. Yeah. This is great. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Wild. Cheers. 
Let's talk about some of the cheeses that you make. Great. We'd love to talk about cheese. <laughs> You've also paid homage to the people who had cultivated the land for years in the naming of your cheeses? Yeah. So the original inhabitants on unceded land on our property are Coast Miwok tribe. Our first cheese that we made is called Kenne, which means one in Coast Miwok. And then we have a cheese like our fresh goat cheese is called Liwa, and that means water. It has the most water content. So this is cheese made from the goat's milk that I actually milked one of the goats up north. That's right. <laughs> and this is the cheese that was made from those from it, those goats. Exactly. So that's our shove, which just means fresh goat cheese. And it's just a couple days out of the mold. It's really tangy, but it's also incredibly smooth and really spreadable. Yeah. I would use this on my bagel. Excellent work, Cecilia. Clearly, you've spent a lot of time on farms. So much time on farms. <laughs> uh, that was actually my first time on a farm, uh, going up to your farm. Um, I, I live in Sacramento originally. I was born there. And, you know, you go to the state fair and you see, like, a goat or a cow here and there. So to see actual animals, like, coming down a hill toward you that are about to be milked was a totally different experience for me. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that you were sort of like, well, I'm going to wear a flannel because um, I'm going to a farm. But then you, I'm going to throw on this, this, you know, I want them to know I'm like a city girl. So I got my leather jacket on. It was both, right? <laughs> so Daily Driver is an urban experience. Um, uh, Tamara, who... No, you nailed it. I mean... Yeah, yeah I mean, a flannel, get that in there. Then the leather <laughs> jacket, got to stay real with it. Um, and then the idea of having an urban creamery was really important to kind of highlight. I think that you know, all of these amazing folks here on stage have talked about the importance of um, the farming and the cheese, but Daily Driver really brings home the fact that um, urban creameries are not really a thing. It's incredibly difficult to bring down the milk from the farm mm -hmm. to actually where folks are purchasing um, the products. And so Daily Driver brings that home for everybody. And there's the giant window that people can actually observe these processes taking place. And it gets someone to actually see the process of the cheese making right in front of them, which is what I wanted to see. And um, it really kind of just shows them how it all takes place and gets that educational portion and aspect to it and brings it home. Um, we have a listener on the live stream who wants you to know that they love your new segment. You're amazing lady. It says, you need to visit Foodie Land Night Market. We are going to go there. Cecilia Tries It is an amazing way that we can just go out into the community and find like places where people can find off-the-beaten-path food locations. So I'm absolutely going to go there. And <laughs> it's another opportunity to just show people places that they can find a ton of different types of food and support local businesses mm. that they wouldn't necessarily see on Chuck Please Bay Area. That's awesome. Uh, Cecilia, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great night. And thanks for sharing the early preview. That's so fun to see. Um, Jenna, what's it like seeing your place on, you know, your, your products and, and your colleagues there sort of in the segment? It's really fun and exciting. Um, Cecilia got to milk a goat with a particularly nicely shaped bag. Um, is which that what is it's called literally? Yeah. Okay. All right. It, in the parlance, you could call it an udder. Um, got it. But uh, 
was just noticing it was like nice and symmetrical. The teeth pointed down, good medial <laughs> ligament. It's just really I was thinking nice all one. that same things. I had the same. <laughs> I could tell. Same train of thought. Um, so now I want to take us a little bit off the beaten cheese trail to Miyoko's Creamery in Petaluma. Um, and, you know, vegan cheese has been around, as we were discussing earlier. How do you think your approach, I mean, you've been vegan for 35 years, I understand. How do you think your approach is sort of different from the folks who preceded you in this? Yeah, well, I really honor history and tradition, and I was a huge cheese aficionado before I became vegan. So my lifelong goal was to figure out how is it done, and can the same techniques be applied to plant milks, and can we turn them into cheese? Cheese is a thing of beauty, of art, of craft, and I don't want to just churn out something that's processed. I want to make something that is um, a labor of love. And so we have a variety of cheeses that they're all fermented, just like dairy cheese. Uh, Many of them, they're coagulated. Um, Some of them are brined. Some of them are aged. Some of them are fresh. So we have a whole variety of them. And uh, tonight I brought a couple of cheeses that have been aged for almost a year. Uh, So, you know, there are, so that's that's our aging uh, room there. And I'm holding up some large wheels of cheese. Uh, And we're constantly experimenting to see what milks work the best, what milks produce certain flavors, what enzymes or bacteria produce certain flavors. Um, And that's really our approach. I think it's it's inspired a lot of smaller cheesemakers the world over. And I have visited vegan cheesemakers all over the world, in Rome and Hungary and London, and they're all doing the same thing. They're all sort of just exploring the the world of plant milks and trying to figure out what can I do with this. You're listening to a special edition of Forum recorded March 11th as part of the KQED live event series. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're listening back to our special Forum live event about Northern California cheese. Our guests included vegan cheese pioneer Miyoko Shinner, founder of Miyoko's Creamery. So one of the things I know about your company is that 
you just got like a $50 million round of venture capital. Um, and I'm curious, I, it's pretty amazing. Um, I'm curious, like, what does the R&D process look like for you, given that you have this money to work with and expand and, and figure out all the enzymes and which seeds have the highest fat content and the other things? Yeah, well, for the first several years, I was R&D. And, uh, you know, I did everything. I mean, it was me, myself, and I. And uh, now we have uh, actual cheesemakers. Um, we have food scientists. We have culinarians. And we work together to figure out what milks can we use, what can we do with it. And it's a matter of trial and error. Um, it, you know, the, the cheeses that you'll be trying, the aged cheeses that you'll be trying tonight were an R&D project we started about a year ago. We had no idea how they were going to turn out. And then we cut into them recently, and it was like, wow, this is pretty good. Uh, so <laughs> so now if we're going to launch them, we have to start now. So, yeah. yeah. Do you see yourself as part of, you know, in the Bay Area, we know there's sort of all these food technology companies, which are, you know, the Impossibles and the Beyonds. Right. Uh, those eggs that aren't eggs, I can't remember what those are called. but Just you know, eggs, yeah. Just eggs, yeah. not eggs, but you know what I'm saying. Um, do you see yourself as part of that movement or not? So that's called food tech. And to be honest, we're, I think, just the opposite. What we're trying to do is, the I see it as the natural evolution of cheese making from cow's milk to goat's milk to sheep milks to, to now plant milk. We're continuing something that started thousands of years ago and evolving it to different, an exploration of new milks. And I believe, for me anyway, I want to eat organically. I want to eat things that are grown from the ground, that are whole foods. And I, I'm not interested in going into a lab and making food made in a lab. And that might be right for some people. But for me, as a chef, I want to approach food as a work of art, as something that is born out of craft and beauty and love. Yeah. I mean, Kate... Uh, on the live stream asks, what are the different enzymes involved in cheese making and which are okay for vegetarians? Jenna, can we start with you on the sort of enzyme question and then we'll, we'll come to Miyoko and maybe some of the same ones and maybe some of them are different. Sure. Um, so the primary enzymes one is talking about when you're talking about making cheese are going to be broadly called rennet. So traditional rennet comes from the abomastum, which is the fourth stomach of a ruminant. So it could be from a calf, a kid, or a lamb. Um, and so that primarily contains two enzymes. One's called chymosin and one is called pepsin. And those are what help turn the milk into a solid gel that you can then cut and treat as curds and so on. Uh, fantastic scientists of today have found ways to uh, have microbes create those same uh, chemically almost identical chymosin, uh, and that is what is typically used for vegetarian-friendly cheeses. So um, that's a little bit of a lab-grown deal, but it's a really fascinating science there. That's interesting. And Miyoko, how, how do you think about the chemistry side? Is that a good... Yeah, so we use a variety of microorganisms, and we are actually working with a culture house to develop proprietary cultures that work specifically for different plant milks. So one that would be for cashews, and that can deliver different flavor and textural profiles. Um, you know, whether they're uh, for trying to create, let's say, something that's cheddar-like or Gruyere-like, we can actually 
use certain microorganisms to create those flavors as they interact with the different proteins and lipids in the milk. And through the aging process, the fats and the proteins break down, releasing different fatty acids and uh, protein molecules that deliver those flavors that we're looking for. So we can actually design that, and that's something that we're working on. Vivian, I want to talk to you about a sort of different... I wouldn't, maybe it's not even research and development, but just the fact that there, each different creamery makes its own kind of cheese, which of course sounds like, well, of course. But there are, I think people who buy cheese in the supermarket might be thinking like, there's 10 types of cheese, you know, or 20 types, of, you know, pick a number. But actually, you know, your cheese trail and some of your work suggests that there's just an Hundreds, yeah. hundreds. There are yeah. so many different ones, and you have to be experimental and adventurous and try new ones. Don't just stick with the same ones. Go try some new things. You'll be completely surprised and excited. So, okay. yes. What are some individual Northern California cheeses that you feel like are really kind of special? Like maybe, I mean, I've heard um, uh, the creamery up in Point Reyes Red Hawk, for example, like what would make a cheese like that special? Red Hawk came as, as actually uh, it was a mistake. They had, were making a Mount Tam, and they put it in the, in the, to be uh, aged along with some other British cheeses, and cheese mites came and crawled onto the Mount Tam, which happens a lot. It's not a big deal. I mean, British cheeses sometimes. Anyway, so they want, didn't want them on this cheese, and so they scrubbed them off with a brine and put them back and looked a little bit later and found out that the cheese was orange. And they said, oh my gosh, what happened? And it turned out that there is, when you get those stinky cheeses, you actually have to add a culture usually into the milk to make a stinky cheese. But they found out that bacteria, bee linens it's called, was actually in the air in Point Reyes. And when they made the cheese moist, it attracted this uh, bacteria and created this unique cheese that can only be made in Point Reyes. That's so awesome. So. Um, does Northern California, I mean, obviously, Napa, Sonoma as wine country are well known and the Bay Area is, you know, restaurant scene. Um, does Northern California get recognized as a cheese region in the world now? Like if you were to go, you know, to the, the cheese regions of France and be like, yeah, I'm from Northern California. Are they like, ah, Point Reyes? I think they have. I think actually Red Hawk was probably the first one to get the Europeans very excited. And... Um, Yes, um, and I want to say that Cowgirl was a big uh, pioneer in starting this artisan cheese movement in, in the Bay Area. They were one of the first, and that's been, I think they came around in 94 or something like that, and so since then, more and more cheesemakers have come online. And the one thing I want to say is that the cheese community is so supportive of each other, so everybody who starts gets the whole community out there to help them. So it's a really nice community. Yeah. Jenna, is that true? <laughs> you felt when you were. It is. It is, yeah. especially having worked in wine previously, where there's a a lot of headbutting, not handshaking. It's been really cool and interesting to have the resources of those who have come before to sort of refer to, get in a long email exchange with. It's really nice. Um, is there such a thing as terroir, like there is in wine, in cheese? Absolutely, especially when it comes to a farmstead product where you're getting milk from just this one herd or this one flock. Um, It's entirely dependent on what the animals are eating 
and how they're raised and all these different factors come together to influence the flavor of the milk for sure. And that is reflective of the land, which is what terroir means. You also noted that, you know, you have uh, goats and sheep there, um, but you don't have cows. How different is it to make cheese out of the, from the three different animals? The process is very similar. You might use different cultures and um, they shed different amounts of whey, for example. So goat milk tends to be a little more watery. Cow is somewhere in the middle and sheep barely has any at all. It's like the most packed and dense with with fat and protein. But also, don't they only produce milk at certain times of year? Like the actual animals themselves that may be more difficult to extract the milk from? I'm Absolutely. Not sure what the right uh, sheep have the shortest lactation period. So when our sheep are in milk, we are work, 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 because you've got to make all the cheese you can with the milk while it's there. Whereas cows, um, they have a much longer lactation period and you can spread it out within your herd to where you have um, the ability to milk year-round. Are there, maybe this is a weird question, but are there certain cheeses that have been like inspirational for you where you've like eaten that cheese and you've been like, our sheep can do this, or whatever it is. I think our sheep can do anything. <laughs> I believe in your sheep. I'm, yeah. um, not necessarily. I think every time I taste a new cheese, it just like adds to the Rolodex of flavors that one might want to go for. Mm-hmm. But for right now, I'm really focusing on just making our current products the absolute best they can be. So that's just paying really close attention to the aging and the the packaging and just all these aspects that um, keep it at peak deliciousness. Cool. Um, I want to open up the house here for questions. Sure, let's start here. Uh, I was wondering how uh, environmental changes uh, have impacted the milk and your cheese making process or nut milk making process as well. And what, what's your name? Where are you from? Oh, sorry, Jen Bennett from Castro Valley. Cool. Thanks, Jen. Do you want to answer? Environmental impact is great. And it really nowadays is coming down to water. So uh, my main goal in the creamery this year is to decrease our water use and really be um, as conscientious as possible about how we're using that limited resource. That's That's the main thrust of it at this point is just really trying to get a handle on where the water's going, and uh, how to make best use of it. Um, I'll jump right in. Uh, The cheeses that you're going to taste tonight are predominantly made out of cashews, and that is one of the least water-intensive crops in the world. They only grow in tropical rainforests, and they're not water. It's actually a wild crop. It just covers vast mountaintops, and the only source of water is rainfall. So there's absolutely no water used. That's where cashews come from? Yes. I feel like I should have known that. Did anybody know that? So they're originally from Brazil. Uh, and they only grow in rainforests, and it, they're not water. They're wild. Um, so, wow. yeah. Does that mean you have a limited supply, though? I mean, I think of, like, the almond orchards here and, like, what's happened as they've become more popular. I mean, Yeah, well, they're, they're, luckily, you know, there's, there's uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles of mountain ranges. Um, I've been to Vietnam, same thing in Ivory Coast, um, Brazil, just covered with... with uh, Cashews, I think we're one of the largest users of cashews in North America at this point. Um, and we are trying to diversify, which is why we're moving to uh, legumes, oats, and watermelon seeds, which are also very, very sustainable. Another question. Hi. Um, 
I feel like producers of food have their own kind of personal favorite, like maybe a bartender's like Fernet, uh, baristas like Cortados. Um, is there like a cheesemaker's cheese that uh, cheesemakers tend to like? Wow. Maybe What's, what a personal. great question. What's your name? Where are you from? Uh, I'm Nathan. I'm from the Richmond District. I think a lot of cheesemakers would say the cheese they like best is the one they don't have to make. (laughs) (laughs) Simply because, um, I I mean, I love all of our cheeses. I think they're really delicious, and I I eat them, and I give them to people. But sometimes it's nice not to have to have been right up on it all the way way along. A a little distance is nice, and it's something you don't expect. Like when somebody else has made it, you don't um, necessarily know if there's a flaw you just like, oh, this is interesting, cool. Whereas if you try your own, you're like, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> okay, quick follow-up. How do you feel about shredded cheese in a bag? Uh, I eat it in the fridge in the middle of the night. No, I don't. Um, it's gross. <laughs> what about melted, though? Um, no, I won't make you answer that. Um, we have another question over here. Hi, I'm Minda Guha from the Co-Caring Initiative. And I thought it was really cool how you talked about how the cheese makers are supporting one another. And one of the things that my organization does is really think about how people can support one another. And, you know, I'm curious, as cheese makers, how you create that culture of sharing and how other industries and other types of people can support your industry. It is a sort of uniquely organic thing in that I think um, cheesemakers know how hard it is to start a creamery. So when they see somebody else with the guts to try and go for it, they sort of gather around and say, you can do it. I believe in you. We need more people out here doing this. Um, So it's really just, I guess it's altruism, which is difficult to rely on, but I'm grateful for it. Vivian, what do you think? I think a lot of the pioneers had really, the pioneers in the artisan cheese world were very kind people. A lot of them were women. There are a lot of women cheesemakers. And I think it came from, I think usually what happens is it comes from the top. So whoever started, if they were nice people, they passed that down to the next generation. And that's what's continued, I think. Do you, why do you think it was that many of the pioneers were women cheesemakers? You know something we can do we're hardworking. <laughs> we're exacting we're kind we're giving i don't know we do a lot of we're just i don't know why i'm not sure hi my name is loretta i'm from alameda and you're talking about how every the process is the same when it comes to doing cheese for sheep and goat and for dairy but i was wondering how do you put your personality how do we taste the personality of the cheesemaker when it comes to eating your cheese? Well, I spit in it. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I'm just I kidding. knew it. Just um, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think the way my personality comes through is really when you come into a farm tour. Um, it's not so much in the cheese itself. It's uh, how it's presented and the ability to sort of explain your process along the way. And really just having fun with it. Wait, hold on. We got to follow up on that. You don't think that the kind of cheese you make is, like, specific to, like, your creation and, like, who you are? It is in that it wouldn't happen if I wasn't there doing it. But I think that uh, it's possible to pass the torch to someone else and still have a really great product and have it be what you want it to be. It's not, it's not like, rock star syndrome, you know? 
you can learn to do it too. Yeah. Um, I'm just really curious about watermelon seeds. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about watermelon seeds, but I, I just can't imagine that they would actually be fatty enough. They're not like a nut. Um, and it seems like it would take an awful lot of them. This is a great question. Uh, I, yes. No, they're actually really high in fat and really high in protein. Now, the protein is different. The protein that you find in dairy milk is casein, which is a very specific structure and functions in a very different way. Plant proteins tend to be globulins. And while they coagulate, they don't behave exactly the same way. So, you know, we're never going to, if you're going to make cheese out of plant milk, they're never going to behave just like dairy cheese. And the way I look at it is they can be different. You know, sheep's milk cheese doesn't pretend to be cow's milk cheese. And plant milk cheese can be yet its own thing. And watermelon seeds really lend themselves well to to cheese making because they are so high in protein and fat. That is so, it's just so interesting that as a general practice, mm-hmm. people spit out the watermelon seeds yeah. when <laughs> you're saying that that's where all the good stuff is. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Melissa from Walnut Creek. Um, I have two questions. They kind of lend into each other. Mayoka specifically, I'm really fascinated by the idea of vegan cheese. I'm wondering though, how much of your creation is cheddar-like, Swiss-like? You know, how much are you trying to fashion your cheeses after cheeses that exist in Dairyland? And how much of it is your own creation? And kind of stemming to that, as far as making cheeses as a whole, how much of your time is spent wanting to create a new type of cheese versus the continuation of similar cheese that you've made for years? Yeah, I think in the beginning, you know, my goal was try to replicate. And then I realized, why am I doing that? Why don't I just make something that's completely new that can still be understood as cheese, but it has its own characteristics, its own flavor. And I think we don't need to replicate exactly what's come before. Let that be its own thing of beauty and we'll create something new. You've been listening to a special edition of Forum recorded March 11th as part of the KQED live event series. Our guests included Miyoko Shinner, founder of Miyoko's Creamery, Vivian Strauss of California Cheese Trail, and Jenna Coglin from Tamales Farmstead Creamery. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Another hour of Forum is up ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.